welcome back to the Running Wine Mom podcast. I'm your host, Samantha Selinski, aka the Running Wine Mom, and today I have a very special guest, my own dad. In this episode, we're going to dive into the topic of fitness and parenthood and explore how my dad managed to maintain a healthy and active lifestyle while raising me and my siblings. From juggling work and family responsibility to finding the motivation to stay in shape, my dad has a wealth of experience and knowledge to share. He's going to share about his recent hiking ventures to Mount Everest, Machu Picchu, and Mount Kilimanjaro at the ripe age of over 60, and also talk about how raising two girls and a boy were very different and exciting. So if you're a parent who's struggling to balance your fitness goals with your family life or just curious about how you can incorporate more exercise into your daily routine, no matter what age you are, you won't want to miss this episode. Let's get started. Welcome, my dad, Rob Rodolico. How are you doing tonight? Very good, Samantha. Pleasure to be here. Looking forward to uh, speaking with you for the next little bit. Is this your first podcast that you've ever done? My very first podcast. Never really listened to podcasts until I started listening to yours, which are very enjoyable, actually. Maybe I'll start listening to podcasts on my uh, long drives that I go on. Yes, I definitely recommend it. That's pretty much what I listen to when I am in the car as well. Podcasts or audiobook. So I know that you are not a big wine drinker, but if you had to choose your drink of choice, what would it be? Well, Samantha, you are correct. I am not a wine drinker. I have drank wine, and honestly, I've tasted expensive wines. I've tasted $10 bottle of wine. Unfortunately, or maybe it's my, well, I, I think I have very good taste buds. There's no difference in taste to me. What my taste buds adore is a ice-cold Heineken at 35 degrees. That is my drink of choice. I actually started drinking those in my 20s, uh, way back when I used to be a cook on a yacht before me and your mother got married. And we were docked at uh, St. Martin, which is a Dutch island. And Heineken is a Dutch property manufactured in Amsterdam. And that's where I started drinking Heineken and uh, loved them ever since. So that's my wine of choice, a 35-degree Heineken. Very good choice. And we're going to have to get into that yacht experience later on in the podcast as well. So let's get on to the next question. What is the wine of the week? I have a good one. Okay. So every year for Christmas, as you know, since you were a little girl, I decorate the house with a zillion lights and what goes up must come down. So this weekend was really actually Sunday was really my first day that was good weather-wise, as well as being able to do it time-wise to start taking the lights down. And unfortunately, your brother was not around, but I just had to take advantage of it because it's going to be March tomorrow, as you know, <laughs> trying to get all those Christmas lights down before... Uh, I, I always do commit to your mother that all the lights will be down before I cut the grass for the first time. <laughs> it's a good goal to have. It's a, it's a goal. It's, I'm very goal-oriented, and that's my goal every year. So did you get them all down? I didn't get them all down, but I got all the ones in front of the house down. I got all the wreaths down. I have still have uh, both sides of the house to do. I'll leave the lights on on the rear. I leave those on all year because in the summertime, you know, we like to sit outside with the lights on. So and the fence lights will stay up too in the backyard. And before we get into your win of the week, do you want to give the little story about the Charlie Brown Christmas tree that's in front of our house? Sure, sure. So I had built a house and as 
the first year came around, we were coming up to Christmas and I knew I wanted to plant our first Christmas tree because that's what my parents did. And they had their Christmas tree planted and it grew and we would decorate it every year. So I wanted to carry on that tradition. So I, I bought this, I can only find this one tree, ball tree, and it was not really that great of a tree, but uh, it was our first Christmas tree. I, I had it in our living room and uh, you know, when the weather broke, I planted it and it was probably about maybe three foot tall back in 1985 and in 2023 it's probably about 30 35 foot tall so it uh, it really took off and it's a bit of a pain to decorate every year because I put put all kinds of lights on there. It looks, see, when you turn the corner, it looks like a net corner on our street, but they're all individual lights that are strung up and hoping I can continue to do that. Otherwise, it'll be Robbie's job, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And what was your win of the week? Well, my win of the week was I recently completed a hike to Kilimanjaro and I took a month off of working out after I got home. I got home on the 27th of January and to the day, which was yesterday, I went back into the gym and started working out again. I swore that I would never get back on a Stairmaster. <laughs> But one of the first things I did was get, uh, actually, the first thing I did was I got back on the Stairmaster. I guess, I guess I'm addicted to the Stairmaster. I didn't do it as crazy I did for my, uh, what I used to do for my workouts, but I got back on the Stairmaster and it felt real good. Well, congratulations. Can't wait to dive into that part of the podcast. But before we get into your fitness aspect, what are the three things that you are most proud of in your life? Three things, I guess, mainly is raising uh, three children successfully, which you'll find out can be challenging at times, but I'm very proud of my three children that I have. The other item is I have a successful career that I've been in, I've been involved with my current company for 33 years and was with a previous company for eight years. So I've had a uh, very successful career in the medical imaging business. And I guess my other big item, ticket item that I'm very proud of is I built a house by my, not, not so much by myself. I didn't put up all the stick and frames, but I, uh, I did a lot of the work inside of it. My wife and I, or your mom, and I went around looking at various houses and kind of came up with the design that they liked. I, I hand drew the plans for the house, turned them into the township, and then managed the construction of it. And I was the uh, laborer on all my cinder block work for my basement and fireplace and did a lot of work inside the house as well. So I started that when I was about 25 years old. Again, had no experience in building houses, but I took one year of architectural uh, class in high school and that, that kind of stuck with me. Kind of the ironic thing is I do a lot of drawing for uh, my, my job and previous job as well with the other company. And the Those house are my is, three big items. And the house is still standing, which is... And the house is still standing. <laughs> We've, it survived a couple of hurricanes. I was very uh, happy about that. And you children enjoyed many years down the basement that we had. Yes, <laughs> so, we did. A lot, lot of fun. A lot of fun. All right. Well, you're going to get to the fitness part next. Before we get into the nitty gritty of your climbs, let's just get some basics of your fitness. What is your main way that you stay active? Well, right now, as you know, I do a lot of work around the house and it, you know, I'll work Saturday and Sunday around the house, basically, well, after church till about five, six o'clock on a Sunday and on the weekends, it'll, it'll be a long day unless we're going out somewhere. And then, uh, at the gym, I mainly do the Stairmaster and the treadmill and the bicycle. 
I was doing some weightlifting prior to my hike to Machu Picchu, and I'll probably get back into that now. Uh, as I stated a little bit earlier, I um, just started getting back in the gym, so I want my bones to get used to working out again after taking a month off. So that, that that's it. All right. And how do you stay motivated through the years to maintain a fitness routine? Well, it's uh, if you have a mirror in your house, that's how I stay motivated. <laughs> As you know, Samantha, there were I did a lot of traveling when you and Allie and Robbie were younger. So it was really kind of hard to work out because I was usually driving all day, get to a hotel, get to sleep, wake up the next morning, do do the work, and then head on home. So there was a few years when I wasn't, actually more than a few years, that I wasn't able to work. And when I was younger, like in my high school uh, and shortly thereafter, I was really into, I was into the gym lifting all the time. And you look at pictures of that. And it's like, damn, I used to look like that. But I, and I know I'll never be at that, you know, that look again, but I try to keep it so that uh, I don't put too much weight on. I try to maintain a, uh, a weight of where I'm at now. So very good. All right. What we are going to focus on for the next topic is that over the last yes. four years, you have climbed three major mountains across the world. Your first being when you turned 60, you climbed to the base camp of Mount Everest. Over this past summer, you and mom and some other friends went to Machu Picchu and did the Inca Trail. And then just this past January, you went to Mount Kilimanjaro and climbed that. So tell us a little bit about why at 60 years old, did you decide to do something that most people would never dream of doing even in their 20s all right well going to school and just learning about the geography of the world and you know all the stories that you would hear about mount Everest. it, it really was mount Everest that really got me involved in the hiking it was a it was a fantasy for me i have notes from like 2006 i started seriously looking into climbing it and just did a lot of research and i realized that going to the top or summoning the top of mount everest was really something that i couldn't do only because the amount of time involved and financially it, to do it correctly which you have to do the result of not doing it correctly is obvious so I, I kind of ruled that out and I was still interested and still looking around and then just doing Google searches and checking things. One, one day I kind of stumbled across that you could hike to the base camp of Mount Everest, which is 17,600 feet. And that got my interest. And this was like 2017. So I, I started looking into various companies that did that, and I found that I could sleep at the base camp, which that sold me on it. So I found uh, a company that did that. It was Ian Taylor Trekking and started thinking real hard, started asking a couple of friends of mine. And um, what pushed me over the top to commit was when the Eagles won the Super Bowl in 2018, I said, if they win the Super Bowl, I can climb Mount Everest. There you go. <laughs> there was, you go. That was kind of like their Mount Everest. Yeah. <laughs> so I committed, you know, I talked to mom and she said, sure, go, you know, go for it. I committed to doing it. And I remember I first started training on March 17th, 2018, which is St. Patty's Day. I went into Willingboro. They got that, uh, that park there. Yeah. And there's a little hill there. It's maybe like 
20 feet above uh, <laughs> above above the dirt so i started going up in there and then and then it just started taking off from there I, I i got into the gym i started conversing with the owner of the company and he was telling me what to do as far as the stairmaster and the treadmill and walking and hiking then uh before i fully committed i took a trip out to Colorado because a co-worker of mine lives out there and he was telling me that they have all these 14ers, 14,000 foot mountains out there. So he tells me do Mount Elbert. It's the tallest one out there. He goes, you'll be able to do it. Don't worry about it. So I had only been uh, working out for like a month or so and I go out to Colorado. I fly in there one day. The next day I start hiking Mount Elbert. Really no acclimatization at all and I started climbing. I'm like, what the hell did I get myself into? <laughs> And it was just, just sucking air. I didn't, I wasn't like, uh, I didn't have any altitude sickness, but I just wasn't used, my body wasn't used to that type of a workout yet. Yeah. I did make it though. I, I was not going to quit. I just was not going to quit. I'm like, I'm here. I'm just going to take my time, get up to the top. And eventually I got to the top and uh, I, I kind of met a guy along the way we kind of went up we're probably like a third left third of the mountain left and uh, got up there then i got up there and realized oh man now i gotta head down and my legs were shot at that point so i did go down the mountain i was the last one off the mountain it was about six o'clock at night i started at six o'clock in the morning and uh, got back i i went to bed that night i thought my legs were going to fall off i woke up the next morning and believe it or not nothing was bothering me other than my feet my feet were just tired so um i called the owner of the company i said is the the hike to mount everest base camp as difficult as what i did and it was uh, actually uh, ian's wife laura said well you're not going to be doing all that altitude in one day you'll be doing it over 10 days so that's when i committed and i got we got a couple of more friends actually i got i uh, gathered up five more people there's six of us that went there was a group of 12 of us in our group all together and we started to climb and it, you know going over there the, the neat thing about it is i flew in a lukla airport which is known as the world's most dangerous airport because it's basically the top of a mountain is clipped off the runway is maybe about 2,000 feet 3,000 feet long because that's just all they that's all they could give you i remember when you were saying that you were gonna fly in I looked up the airport on YouTube and I thought, well, I don't think that I could ever do Mount Everest because I couldn't go into this airport. Yeah, it was, uh, well, that, that's, uh, your dad's a little bit of a daredevil. And that was one of the things I wanted to do just to fly, you know, just to say I flew into the world's most dangerous airport. At the end of the runway, there's a stone wall just in case the brakes came oh, out. <laughs> you have a way to, you have a way to stop. And then it, when you take off, you know, obviously I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but when you take off, there's about like a three to might be 6,000 foot drop. And of course you're in between the mountains. So the wind is always a factor when flying that boat. But uh, obviously, I made it back. But getting back to the, the whys of why I did it, it was just something that I wanted to do. I did the whole trek. It was 45 miles up. It took us 10 days to get up there. There was a couple of days of acclimatization. So, you know, it wasn't 10 days of straight hiking. But every day we did a hike. Just we would go up a little bit higher and then come back down to our camp. I stayed in a real neat town called Nam Chi Bazaar, which I tell everybody is like the Las Vegas of that area. <laughs> there's really nothing out there. there, there it's a shame. There's, there's no roads, number one, so you walk everywhere. There's absolutely no roads. But those people are so dependent on tourism uh, or they have a farm. That's all there is. There's no industry. 
So again, it took me 10 days to get up, 45 miles, made it to the top, and I was sucking wind. As you got up higher, you're really sucking wind because you do a lot of up and down, and it is tough on your body. But made it up there, slept under the stars because you slept in a, uh, a tent at the base camp. Along the way, we slept in these little huts. And like I said, I slept under the stars at night. Sky was absolutely beautiful. I never saw so many stars. And then it took me three days to get down. 15 miles a day we walked to get down. So out of the six of us, out of my group, the six of us that went, I was the only one that made it up and down. Wow. Uh, out of the 12 of us that started, only six of us made it up and down. So it was an intense trip. And people dropped out due to altitude sickness. There's three or four of them that dropped out due to altitude sickness. And then two of them made it to the top, but they, they, they just were white. They couldn't make it down. So they skedaddled out of there via helicopter. And that's my uh, Mount Everest story. Very inspiring. In the group that you were in, how did your age range fall from the six that made it up and back? Was there anyone older well, than you? Out of the whole group, there was probably about, I don't know, maybe four that were in her 60s. I was 60 at the time, probably four or five in the 60s. One guy was in his 50s, and then there was mostly everybody else was in their 30s. On the way down, out of the six of us, it was me, I was 60, another guy was 50-ish, mid, mid to late 50s, and then the other four guys were all in their 30s. And, you know, they performed well because you, you, you're just able to. So, wow. But I, I just kept going. I was not going to uh, stop. But don't get me wrong, along the way, there was a thousand times I said, I, I can't do this. But I just kept saying, I'm going to do it. Yeah. You know, there, there's so many, it's like life. There's so many obstacles that that get in your way and it's like, no, I can either crawl up in a shell and turn around and go home or suck it up and uh, and go for it. So I chose to go for it. I guess I know where I get that mentality from. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad. <laughs> it seems like you obviously had a little bit of trouble climbing, but you completed it, which is the most important part. But what did you do to prepare physically and mentally for the climb? That's a good question. Physically, actually wasn't that bad, or at least I didn't think so, because I knew what I had to do. So I busted my my butt. I was on a Stairmaster four or five times a week. I, I had a workout. I put a 26-pound vest on me, and I would do the Stairmaster for 45 minutes. This is what the owner of the company told me to do. So I did exactly what he told me to do. And then he said, after that, go on the treadmill and walk about an hour. So that's what I did four to five times a week. And if, if I wasn't doing that, I actually did a lot of hikes in the area. I did a lot of hikes in the uh, Delaware Water Gap, a little bit further west in PA along the Susquehanna, not, not so far west, but along the Susquehanna, up in North Jersey, a bunch of hikes up in that area. And anybody locally listening to this, we have so much scenery that I never knew existed until I started hiking. So, and, and the hikes around here are not that difficult. They can be long. I mean, you have some rock scrambles. Yeah, what was the one that we did in North Jersey, was it? Uh, that, yeah, was... that was a, that was, a, well, we did that and we should have never done that hike because it was what, like about maybe four to six inches of snow. So yeah. we never knew where the trail was. That was the biggest problem. Yeah. Uh, you know, you have the markers on the trees but you can't always see them either. That was a difficult hike because you're sliding all over the place. There's rocks underneath you. And I, I did that a couple of times. 
not the smartest thing to do, but you got, unfortunately, got to do it because you may come across that on your hike. You just don't know. So physically, that's what I did. I, I trained really hard and it definitely paid off. Mentally, I knew it was going to be tough. So I don't know if there's anything you can do mentally to train. I just told myself, you're going to get your ass kicked. So just be prepared for it. And that's what I did. Like, um, when, when I was doing the Everest hike, one of the guys, he was in his 40s, who lived in Colorado as a professional skier, he actually got sick and he went home. He was with his mother. And when he went home, I'm thinking to myself, if he can't make this, how the heck am I going to make it? So I just started hiking that day and just continued. That was kind of early on. That was only like the third or fourth day into the trek. And we still had seven days left. So, um, again, mentally, you, you just got to stay focused and you got to look at the end goal. And that's that was really what kept me going on on that hike is like I got six more days to this to base camp, five more days. That's how I did. I said, just get through this day. It was always just get through this day. Just get through this day. Just get through this day. So that's how I kept myself going. Was there any motivation from people at home? Because I know there was a lot of people that said, oh my gosh, you're crazy. Or, and there was a lot of people cheering you on. Was any of that in your mind or was more just something that you well, wanted to do for you yourself? Know, a little bit of both. There was a lot of people that told me I was crazy for doing this. You're 60 years old. I mean, I am not the most thinnest perfect person in the <laughs> world. I have a uh, very stout body. I'm, uh, you know, I'm 5'9", 230 on a good day. And my thighs are uh, enormous. They're most people's waist. So I'm not really built for mountain climbing per se. Well, you uh, have strong legs, so that's probably yeah, I something. do, I do. But you know, if you saw Ian Taylor, yeah, he's he's kind of like a string bean. Not that he's super thin, but uh, Ian Taylor, who owns the trekking company, and he's hiked to the summit of, of Everest. And my point is a lot of people, because of my build, my age, were telling me I couldn't do it. That definitely motivated me because I just wanted to prove them wrong. And then the other things is uh, when you and, and Allie would send me those messages every day, tell me to, to go on, that probably more than anything kept me motivated with the, with the uh, text that you and Allie would send me, show, tell me to keep going. So yeah, that was big, that was big. I know Allie had to rearrange all the letters on Carter's board every every day. So I'm I'm sure she'll be glad to hear that that was all worth it. You mentioned that the altitude was definitely something that was a predicted problem and a problem for some people along the way. How did you prepare for that? Or is there anything you can do to prepare for that? Well, I mentioned that I went to Colorado and I actually went to Colorado twice and got up above 14,000 feet twice with no issues. I mean, the first climb I did to Mount Elbert was just physically difficult, but the, um, you know, the altitude, my body wasn't prepared for that thin air. So the second time I went to Colorado, I climbed Mount Bierstadt, and that was relatively easy because my body was prepared and also, you know, I could handle the altitude a lot better. So what... I did was I went and saw a travel doctor, uh, mm-hmm. as everybody in our group did, and they give you altitude medicine, and I, I took it. I was not going to be proud and not put anything and not be one of those who say, I'm not going to put this in my body. The only side effect of the altitude pills is that you, you urinate a lot. That's not a bad side effect because 
listen, you invest a lot of money into that trip. Yeah. And I wasn't going to let altitude sickness make me turn around. So I didn't feel any altitude. I didn't have any headaches. I wasn't nauseous. Again, the most difficult part of the trek was just breathing. On your climb, what was the most beautiful or awe-inspiring moment during the climb, whether it was a view or just a moment? What do you think was the best part of the climb or if there's a few different ones that you have well actually there are a few different ones the area is just vast if you've ever been to vegas you you see the hotels next to it and you start walking to the hotels it takes like a half hour to get from hotel to hotel well in in nepal along the route up to the base camp is those mountains are huge and they're far apart and it's just amazing the geology behind it as far as the pressure that must have made those mountains so high it's kind of crazy what was all inspiring the fact when i finally did make it i actually brought me to tears because it had been a lifelong goal Mm -hmm. uh, that i wanted to do and i did it the other thing that was all inspiring kind of mentioned a little bit earlier is when when i sat down at I, i woke up about two o'clock in the morning the night we slept on base camp and I sat outside I was all by myself everybody else was sleeping and I just sat out there for an hour just staring at the stars because as you know around here we have a ton of light pollution and that was one of the other things I wanted to see when I went out there it's just a clear sky because I hadn't seen one that clear since the early 80s when I was down in the uh, islands and that was just so quiet and so beautiful it was, it was absolutely I, I wish i had a good camera yeah that to take a picture and and unfortunately one of the guys that got sick he got sick the first day he had the camera to take the picture but he got sick so he never made it to the base camp but i can only describe it because i have no pictures of it just unbelievably beautiful memory for yourself is a oh good yeah it's, thing. A, it's, a, it's a brain memory for sure what was the most difficult part of the climb? And was there any point that you considered turning back? Well, again, when uh, one of the 40-year-old, the mm-hmm. when he couldn't make it, I didn't consider turning back, but it's like, it's like I said earlier, if he can't make it, how the heck am I going to make it? He's 20 years younger than me. He's a professional skier. He lives in Colorado, lives on the slopes. But there was a couple other people there that encouraged, not that I thought that I said out loud, I'm going to turn around. They're like, come on, Rob, you can get this you'll get over this. And uh, I carried on. So yeah, there was there was a lot of difficult times there. Because you're sucking wind and you're like, what in the heck am I doing this <laughs> to myself? <laughs> yeah, kind of funny when you think about it. it's like, why? Why did I, I pay more... all this money to do well, this? <laughs> I, had to, I told my buddy, this is what I was going on. He goes, and you paid for that? Yeah. <laughs> what lesson did you learn from the climb? And has it affected your life since you've been back from it? Well, the lesson that I learned is you'd be surprised how strong the human body can be. And I don't just mean physically. I I am talking mentally. Yeah. Sometimes Um, I think mentally is more important than physically. That, that, exactly. Physically, you can prepare yourself. As you know, you can work out, you can lift weights. And I'm just talking about anything. You know, you can lift weights, you can run, you can do whatever the heck you have, uh, have to do to get in shape or stay in shape. But mentally is really what is really what gets you to the top. 
stop because again nobody's talking because everybody's breathing so heavy it's not like you're having a conversation with the people that you're with you're you're focusing on breathing and you're focusing on one step in front of the other that's literally what you're doing your body at least my body goes into a survival mode Mm -hmm. and my survival mode is one step in front of the other and breathe so that that was the difficult uh, part of it just maintaining that focus all right well anything else you want to say about your mount everest that you didn't share before you move on to the next hike no it's just if you have a couple extra bucks and you're looking for an adventure i would highly recommend it the one thing unfortunately is the glacier that is base camp number one is melting so if you want to get to the original base camp i recommend going oh one other thing i wound up actually meeting one of the sherpas that was on the original hike with Sir Edmund Hillary. That was emotional for me because Sir Edmund Hillary had over 400 people, I believe, supporting him. And this Sherpa was one of the Sherpas that supported Sir Edmund Hillary. That that was really neat to meet him. Where was he at? He was in a monastery. They they have, like along the way uh, up to uh, Everest, there's some monasteries. There's these, I don't want to say they're towns, but these little villages or yeah for villages that have lodges and that's where the that's where you sleep every night as you're hiking up there and that's what i was saying earlier i feel so bad for those people because during covid nobody was going up there so i don't i don't know what they did to make ends meet yeah that was crazy all right well thanks for sharing about that that's such an awesome memory and you know legacy to leave for the future generations to say my Pops or my dad climbed to the base count of Mount Everest. There's no one else that I know that's ever done that. So that is, I'm really proud of you for doing that. And maybe one day I'll do it when I'm 60, but <laughs> I guess I should do it before <laughs> no, do then, it. right? Do it now. I got to do it now. Are you going to watch the, you're going to watch the kids? Is that what oh, you're sure. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Cause we'll probably be retired by the time, by yeah. the time you do that. So we'll, we'll have some extra time. Let's move on to the Inca trail and Machu Picchu. That was your next trip because as you said, the, Everest Base Camp you got in right before 2020. It was November 2019 you got back. And then you obviously had to take a little bit of a hiatus. And in July of 2022, you and mom got to go to do the Inca Trail in Machu Picchu. And why was that your next choice of hikes? As you know, and we got back in November of 2019, and then in March of 2020, everything shut down due to COVID. We, we were still hiking in the beginning of January. I, I, again, I took a, about a month off after, uh, after I got back from Everest and then started hiking again. And, you know, we hiked a couple of times and then COVID hit. And I was actually looking over some pictures. I think COVID hit in March, March 13th of 2020. We actually went hiking on March 14th over into uh, New Jersey. So we continue to hike with our core group. I have a picture of the sign that I brought up to Everest, and it was kudos to mom and Linda Boyd who helped me train. Well, Linda's part of the core group, and we continue to hike, not as much because of COVID. Everybody was afraid to be around everybody because we didn't know what the heck was going on. And then COVID started easing up, and then we, our core group got back together, and we're like, you know, we got to do something. So we did some research, and we found Machu Picchu that would be a good hike for everybody. And culturally, it was unbelievable. And the scenery was outrageous as well. And trained for that. 
that. Uh, mom and I went to Colorado. That was mom's first time in Colorado, and she kicked butt out there. She had getting used to the altitude was a little bit difficult, as it usually is for the first time. But and that's just breathing properly. But physically, your mom was able to do it. So she committed to going to Machu Picchu. And, uh, I organized a group of ten. And it was just a fabulous trip. It really was. It was a, I think it's a 26-mile hike or 25-mile hike along the Inca Trail. And absolutely beautiful. The crazy thing is that a lot of the sites were either filled in when the Spaniards came over and conquered the Incas. So some of the sites were filled in or they were just overgrown. And, you know, along the way, along the route, you see these stairs that kind of go to nowhere because they're overgrown but the sites that were unearthed uh, they're absolutely stunning and it's like how do these people carry all these rocks and boulders to this elevation it's kind of a mystery i guess it was done with slave labor but i don't know how they got the stones there but the point being is that was an absolutely beautiful beautiful scenery wise hike wasn't that difficult your mother and i really didn't have any problems doing it the biggest thing that graded on me per se was that all the trails were basically stones so your cobblestones if anybody's familiar with cobblestones and regardless of what shoes you have on your feet bother you so um but just a beautiful hike absolutely beautiful hike and beautiful scenery awesome so did you feel like you had less training for that or more training were you expecting it to be easier obviously than the base camp of everest or how did that kind of unfold Uh, I took it just like it was a base camp at Everest. Listen, when you get involved in those high altitude hikes, you don't take anything for granted. At least I don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I didn't know my next hike. You, you just got to go at it. And you got to train like you're training for a very tough task in front of you. And it was made easier because it wasn't as difficult as Everest. But I trained like it was Everest, so it made it that much easier. for. And Mom made it as well because she trained real hard for it, too. Yeah. And we kind of did the same stuff. I was in the Stairmaster. Your mother, because she loves to run so much, she just ran, you know, forever to get ready. And we both went on hikes like we did for the Mount Everest trek so yeah and what was the most beautiful part of that well there's uh like I said a half a dozen I'm probably saying a half a dozen I'm sure changing there's a half a dozen sites that are just fabulous and the last the Machu Picchu actually Machu Picchu that is absolutely beautiful gorgeous whatever you want to call it but again there's there's other sites that are just as big and just as beautiful like I said I the, the stonework is crazy. It's absolutely crazy how they did it. So there is a lot of beautiful scenery. Unfortunately, it was cloudy a lot of days, so we didn't get to see the night sky like I had hoped. But when we got up real high, I actually have a couple of pictures where above the clouds, like the mountains above the clouds, the mountain that we're sleeping at, because we slept in tents for five nights there, whereas in Everest, we stayed in the cottages other than the base camp. So every night, unfortunately, it was a little bit cloudy, so there wasn't, wasn't a lot of good sky views. But the cool thing was one night we slept uh, so high that we were above the clouds. That was, that was pretty cool. And cool. just to look down. So I got some pretty cool pictures of that. And did you find that you had any challenges on this one, even though it was a little bit easier? Well, the biggest challenge I had, and it wasn't so much a physical challenge. Again, it was a little bit mental. I was really concerned about your mother because I didn't know how she would react 
to the altitude uh, over a long period of time. I mean, I had the experience and uh, she didn't. And I organized the group, so I was worried about basically the other eight other people, but mainly worried about your mother, but she kicked butt. So uh, all along I was worried, but she kicked butt, did a great job. Did you guys talk about what your plan was if one of you had to stop and one of you wanted yes. to keep going? Yes, the plan was whoever got sick went out and whoever was able to go kept going because you have a lot of money invested into this. So that's what we talked about. So we were prepared for that. But luckily, we didn't have to worry about it. Was there any interesting or surprising facts that you learned while you were there? Well, I, I guess looking at the stonework, not I ever figured out who did it, but the stonework of the Incas was uh, pretty amazing. And also found out that was only discovered like about 100 years ago. Oh, wow. Machu Picchu. Yeah. So uh, it was like around 1911, so 110 years ago, whatever the math winds up being. And it was it was built in the 1600s. Like I said, the Spaniards came in, conquered, and either destroyed or buried a lot of the sites, which is kind of crazy because I don't know where they got all the sand from or whatever the heck they used to bury the sites. Uh, and they're still excavating sites. There's, I think that there's more sites undiscovered than there's sites discovered. Oh, wow. So, uh, yeah, yeah. It's pretty pretty neat place to go if you want like a quick trip per se uh, an okay. exploring quick trip that's a good place to go Machu Picchu maybe Any... not right now they're, they're having yeah. a little civil unrest interesting Wait till things calm down you uh <laughs> came home from Mount Everest and the world shut down and you came home from Machu Picchu and their country basically shut down <laughs> so people get upset when I leave I guess yeah <laughs> Yeah, I know. I have a bad, uh, I have a bad track record. So let's see what happens with this next uh, trip we're going to talk about. Yes, your third big trip was to Mount Kilimanjaro, and you just did that in January with Greg, who has done the other two trips with you as well. Correct. And how did you guys decide that you were going to go to this one next? Greg had wanted to do Mount Kilimanjaro. I had no interest in it. I really didn't want to do it because it was nineteen over nineteen thousand feet. We did 17,000 feet at Everest. I was happy. I was happy with 17,000. But I did it because Greg kept asking me, not that he pressured me into it, but I had somewhat pressured him into, <laughs> not, not so much pressured, but asked him to go to Kilimanjaro. He actually volunteered because I asked a bunch of people. He was the one person, believe it or not, I did not want going to Mount Everest with me because he he was a triple bypass surgeon. He had triple bypass surgery in 2016. I never thought he would want to go, but he he sucked it up. He made Mount Everest. He made it up there. He didn't walk down, but uh, he sucked it up, made it there. Yeah. When we were in Machu Picchu, he got he got altitude sickness and he was puking. He goes, "I'm not going to Kilimanjaro." I did not say anything because I knew his uh, comments were emotional. Yeah. So I just let it in ride. In the moment. In the moment. His, his comments were in the moment. But we had already committed to Kilimanjaro right around the same time we committed to Machu Picchu. So I, I let it kind of slide. After Machu Picchu, I took, again, a month off and then uh, got back into it. And I said, hey, what are you going to do? And he said, I, I'm going to go. So we trained. I trained, again, just as hard as before. This time I had to hike by myself a lot of times because everybody else was kind of done with hiking. So I did a lot of hikes up into uh, the Delaware Water Gap. I love the Sunfish Pond hike. It's a beautiful hike. I did some other hikes as well. 
And yeah, we went to Kilimanjaro. We left here on Friday the 13th. It was a 26-hour flight with uh, layovers, but we got there and had a good time. And what route did you take to climb? We took the eight-day route, which is known as Lamosho route. That route allows better acclimatization, which, I mean, I believe it does because there was a group that came back as we were heading out. They did it in five or six days, which is, you know, maybe if you're young, like your age, you can do that. But right now I'm 63. I'll be 64 in a month. So, or April, I should say. So I wanted to uh, play it safe and I wanted to get to the top. So that was the route I took. And how was the group that you went with this time? I mean, you went with Greg, but there was obviously more people in your yeah we had uh we had a total of 14 people that started the trek uh after the first day unfortunately one of the ladies got sick she was with her husband and she got sick so she had to bow out uh, her husband remained he, he made it to the top and then uh, on the way unfortunately two people had to turn around as they were getting ready to summit from 16,000 to 19,000 feet to or to the 19341 they had to turn back. They just they just couldn't do it, which was a shame. So 11 people made it to the summit. Greg and I, being the old folks, we were, I was the oldest one on that trek. So what I, I had spoken with the owner, uh, Ian Taylor was on this hike, and that was one of the main reasons why I chose to go when I went, because I knew he would... He would help us to get to the top. And that was, again, uh, you know, you're trying to angle yourself for success. So uh, <laughs> I pulled in the owner on this one. And what I was saying was Greg and I were always lagging behind everybody because everybody else was younger. I mean, it was it was us and then a bunch of 50-year-olders and then younger than that. And it, it's a, it, you'd be surprised what age does to you when you're, when you're at that type of uh, stress you're putting on the body. So uh, I spoke to the owner and the lead guide i said i think greg and i should leave an hour before everybody and then this way the, the the pack will catch up with us and they agreed to that when, when you summit the top or at least when ian taylor trekking goes for the summit they leave at 12 30 at night to get there at 6 30 in the morning to see the sunrise greg and i left at 11 30 at night and we got there at 5 30 in the morning we kicked butt we weren't supposed to go that fast yeah but we kicked butt. We actually didn't see the sunrise until our way back. We saw the sunrise at Stella Point. And I've got some beautiful pictures of the sunrise. And then we obviously passed uh, our group on the way down and they were heading up right around Stella Point. So Yeah, that was, uh, I remember I couldn't sleep that night for some reason. And it was around midnight our time. And I opened up my Instagram and I saw that the trekking group had posted a picture of everyone at the summit. And I literally was zooming in and I was trying to find you or Greg and I couldn't find either of you. And obviously we didn't have any communication. So I mean, I I was comparing the pictures of that they posted earlier. I'm like, maybe that's dad back there, but I don't know. And eventually, probably after an hour of me just like, spiraling I fall asleep and on my way to work Allie texts me I knew what she was going to text me right away she said I don't see dad in the picture where where are they and that's probably the most stressful part because we couldn't get a hold of you to see where you were so she messaged the company on Instagram and then they ended up posting the picture of you and Greg in the dark which we were still confused about but at least we knew that you made it so that was uh, 
on our end, the most stressful part. Well, not that it's a funny story, but it was a funny story when it happened, only because Ian said, hey, I posted a picture of everybody going to the top. I'm like, Ian, why did you do that? I said, you don't know this, but my family is going to be in a panic because they didn't see me. So, uh, you know, on the way back, everything, you know, that's when Ian eventually posted the picture and he showed me Allie's text. I said, I told you that this was going to happen. You should have posted all the pictures. But yeah, it was, you know, when we got to the top, first of all, the hike to the top was absolutely brutal. Yeah. (laughs) It was zero degrees. Maybe... Yeah, well, dark you can live with because you got a a headlamp. It was like, you know, zero to five degrees, maybe 10 degrees, but it was brutally cold. And it was like 30 mile an hour winds. I wasn't even looking up. I was watching, Greg was in front of me, so I was just watching his heels. That's how I made it up there. We would stop about every hour, take a little sip of water, eat some chocolate. And uh, they were giving us some sugar pills so that, you know, we had energy. But that trek up there from 16,000 feet to the, the top was brutal. We got to the top and, you know, as you know, we flew a lot of flags. The first flag we flew, you can't even see the sign because it's all covered with frost. It was kind of snowy, frosty. And after that, one of the guides wound up wiping all the snow off of the, the uh, markers up there. And then all the other flags that we flew, and there's a picture of Greg and I in front of it uh, that you can see that it's Mount Kilimanjaro, 19341, you know, all that good stuff. But uh, that, that was a tough hike. And it was actually tougher, just as tough going down, because once you kind of got off of the very top of, which is a volcano, Kilimanjaro is a volcano, you get into this, I guess it's volcanic ash, kind of, and it's pretty thick. So I actually have uh, my one of the guides took pictures of me. I'm kind of like skiing down the mountain. Oh wow! Uh, because it was so thick, and and of course it was very steep. So that that was no picnic coming down either. What was the most beautiful part of this hike? There is one picture, or one couple of scenes that was absolutely beautiful. Uh, the whole way up, I mean, there's a lot of pretty sights along there. But on the way back down, as the sun was rising, it looked like I was on Mars. It really did. It was absolutely beautiful. And it was, you know, it's quiet, serene. And you see, you know, the, the volcano blew out these boulders. And I've seen pictures of Mars, at, you know, the red planet. And just the way the sun was reflecting off of the rocks... It was really cool looking. It looked like we were on Mars. And I just took that, you know, again, talking about Everest, why I did that. That was just all the stuff that we learned about or I learned about growing up. And that's the stuff that just was pictures in my mind. And I finally got to see this stuff live and in person. Just a fabulous, fabulous trek. That's awesome. What would you say the most difficult part of it was? Just there a specific I, part? I can, answer, I can answer that. But uh, young children, put your hands <laughs> over your ears. Uh, I had... I had diarrhea for the entire time. Yeah, I forgot. About uh, that. And it was it was altitude related. I mean, I was getting up four times a night, and we slept in tents. I was going as soon as I got up in the morning, and then after breakfast, and then along the trail, I'd pull up uh, behind a rock. Allie gave me doggy bags, you know. Yeah. I went. I blew through them. Uh, that's where I was like, why am I doing this? This absolutely sucks. But, you know, you talk about the mental toughness and I'm like, this is not 
This is not going to do me in. I'm not going to get done in by diarrhea. I'm sorry, I'm <laughs> That's not, not what's going to uh, take That's you down. That's not one of it. It's going to take an arrow. Somebody's going to have to attack me something, but this is not going to this is not going to do me in diarrhea. Did, but that did, that was tough. That was tough. Did you have any medicine that you could take for it or you had to just drink more fluids? I tried everything. I tried everything. I had Imodium and then a couple of people wound up getting medicine from their, do you know, from the travel doctors in case I got diarrhea. I was doing like four of those tablets a day. I was <laughs> overdosing on that. Nothing. It actually stopped when I got back to Arusha. It was like a switch went off. I'm telling Down you. Down to I'm lower like, altitude. Yeah. Uh, Arusha is around 6,000 feet. When I got back to Arusha after the hike, it was like a switch went off. It was unbelievable. It was like, because I thought it was food related, you know, that's yeah. why I had, but it was altitude related, which is kind of crazy. I never had that problem hmm. before. Well, you've so, never really, I mean, you're not really around that altitude too often, I would say. Well, three times in my life. Yeah, oh, no, actually longer. Uh, well, I've been Colorado three times, so. All right. Another good, successful trip, minus the diarrhea. Sorry <laughs> to your group members for that. Yeah. Of all of the three trips that you took, would you go back to any of them to read, to do it again if you were younger? That's a tough question. I mean... They all were special in their own way. I mean, at this age, I wouldn't go back and do them. If I was younger, I, I would consider it, maybe. But if I was younger and started this sooner, I would probably hike some other spots, only because it's, you know, you, you've done it. So, mm -hmm. that makes uh, sense. No, yeah, no, no need to, at least for me, I mean, I, I would go back to each of those countries. I would go back to Nepal. I would go back to Peru. And I would, I would love to go back to Africa to get on a safari. Okay. That, that's on my bucket list. But uh, every place we went was really neat. But I, I would go elsewhere. And what advice would you give someone thinking about hiking, especially the higher altitude mountains? Take it very seriously. You have to commit yourself. It's not like you're going, uh, just decide to run a couple of miles uh, and, and do it. You have to be committed. And when I, my first big hike, as we spoke about was Mount Everest and I started training like I said March 17th of 2018 and I went in November of 2019 so I trained for a year and a half for that because of my age I knew I mean I knew what was in front of me this wasn't uh, on a whim whereas I was going to I made the decision in March and I was going to go in June or whatever I gave my body enough time to get prepared again you're doing a lot of training but that's also mental because if anybody ever has ever done the Stairmaster, I don't know what's more boring than doing the Stairmaster for 45 minutes because it's like, and, and then the last, you know, 10 minutes takes like three hours. So, and that's the mental toughness that believe it or not, it builds up mental toughness. So yeah, at least you weren't on a Stairmaster yourself. probably is something that you could be thinking of. At least there's some views while you're climbing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. So, uh, you, you got, take it seriously. I would advise if you have any inkling of doing something like that, go for it because, you know, listen, your body does catch up to you. That's why uh, professional athletes are done in their 30s because of the, the brutalness of their sports. We're a little bit fortunate where we're not beating our bodies up like they are, but don't wait too long. Go for it. Go for it. Go for your dreams. That's what I tell everybody. Well, that is a great way to end the fitness part of it. And again, I know that we are all so proud of the trips that you took and especially doing it at an age that you 
did it at. And again, I just know so many, everyone that I tell is like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that your dad did that. How old is he? What, why did he do that? But it's definitely makes everyone realize that age is just a number and you're never done with being able to, you know, reach a dream or a goal, no matter what your age is. Well, you know what? You actually said it right there. You know, you want it. I'm, as you know, Samantha, I'm a big dreamer. But set realistic goals and uh, just go for it. You know, don't let someone or yourself talk yourself out of doing something that you've been wanting to do that's obviously good for yourself and good for mankind. Do it. Just go and do it. You'll be thankful that you did it. And uh, you'll be proud. And like you said, you know, your family members will be, you, know, you should have good support from your family members, which I did. I was thankful for that. And so go for it. Good advice. All right, before we get into the nitty gritty of parenthood, we all had lives before we were parents. And whenever I tell people this about you, they kind of give me another weird look, which I guess maybe is just (laughs) something that comes along with your personality. But when you were in your early 20s, you worked on a yacht. And let's just talk quickly about that before we move forward. All right. Well, yeah, I used to be a sous chef on a yacht. It was owned by Amway Corporation. So I was uh, involved in uh, making dinners for the Amway guests as well as the Amway owners and got to travel from Nantucket to Fort Lauderdale and then to St. Martin for the different seasons. So I did that off and on for two years and it was just a great experience. You know, as a young kid, I would, I would have probably never have seen those locate or been to those locations without being uh, involved in a yachting so it's just kind of fun uncle mike got me involved in that i would go visit him and just got to know the crew so when there was an opening they had asked me if i wanted to join and uh, you know at the time i was working but i was like you know what i'm uh, I'm gonna do this for a couple years so that's kind of what i did so i did that and uh, really had a great time doing it and again that's where i learned to love heineken (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) <laughs> and probably up your cooking game, too, a little bit. Yes. I was able to, uh, I guess, push a bunch of my recipes onto the head cook, and he was very open to that. And, I mean, there, there was pretty much set dinners, but lunch and breakfast was open. So I did a lot of the uh, the lunches as far as creating a little bit of, of some different food tastes for uh, for the lunch. So it wasn't the same old, same old, every, you know, all the time. So it was a lot of fun. Do you remember a favorite dish that you prepared or that had a really good reaction from the guests? Well, I did a lot of antipastas Mm -hmm. and uh, we kind of had an, not that we kind of, we had an unlimited budget as far as food. So I would make the antipastas pretty exotic. I introduced them to grandmom's meatballs. Uh, So, you know, they never had, which was really our hamburgers, as you know. Yeah. They never had hamburgers like that before, so I introduced. And it was a lot of a lot of basic food that I, I just upped the game to. Everybody eats a hamburger, but they never had the way we made our hamburgers. Or, you know, just different types of sandwiches. Even simple stuff with club sandwiches. Just spiced them up, a, not spiced them, but uh, made, them, made them a lot better than what they were. So I made pizza for them. You know, just a lot of different odds and end type stuff that, uh, again, we had a set menu every night for dinner, but the lunches and the breakfast, uh, not so much on the breakfast end, but mainly the lunch ends, I uh, I did kind of did a lot of creative work with that. 
did you get to interact with the guests on the ship? No, the cooks really never interacted with the guests because we were in the galley and, and it was just the stewards that really took care of the guests. Once in a while, they would ask us to come out and take a bow, so we would do that, but that wasn't that often. Uh, the owners of the yacht were very, of Amway, that, that also owned the yacht, very nice people. And, you know, they would once in a while sit with us and talk with us. Just a whole, that's a whole nother world, like a whole nother world, 20 levels above <laughs> above everybody else's world. And would you be able to explore when you guys were docked or did you have yeah, to yeah, yeah, stay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did, did a lot of that, a lot of snorkeling, a lot of fishing, a lot of sail. Not sit, we had a sunfish. So we did a lot of, you know, small boat sailing uh, on the other boat that was on the, uh, we had two other boats on top of the yacht. One was a 25 foot sea craft that we could, that we could use. And we also had a Zodiac, which was kind of like those blow up boats Mm -hmm. and it had a nice size engine on it. We could water ski with that. So uh, when there was downtime, we were able to have some fun. It was a lot of fun. Did you have any crazy stories that you can share? Crazy stories? Oh, one time, I guess it was... One of the owners were on board, and they had bodyguards, and these guys were huge. <laughs> but they were good guys. They were good guys. We went out. They took us to, uh, this is when St. Martin, they took us to a, this bar in St. Martin. And we really, you know, we had whatever we wanted to drink, and we were mixing liquor and wine and beer, and it got really crazy. <laughs> we all got thrown out. Oh, jeez. Yeah, the bodyguards were stumbling away. You know, it was it was just a comical night. It really was just to see those. I mean, these guys were, and I'm not exaggerating, like six five, six six, and they must have been ex football players, but really, really good guys. And like I said, they would always take care of us whenever they came down. So it was a lot of fun. Well, that's a I'm sure a very distant memory, but a really cool memory to share. Anything else about that? You know what? We went to, when we were based out of uh, St. Martin, we went to this small island called Saba, which was just basically a volcanic uh, rock that stuck out of the water. And that was about 2,500 feet tall, maybe 2,200 feet tall. And we would climb that. That's where, I guess that's where I got my climbing. A memory unlocked. Yeah. And that was, uh, there was a rainforest at the very top. It was kind of neat. So you would you would uh, climb all the way to the top of the rainforest and just hang out there and then come back down. But that was a, that was a lot of fun uh, going to Sabo. Awesome. Well, thanks for sharing that yep. part of your life. All right, on to our last part of the podcast uh, where I'm going to talk about marriage, parenthood, and being a grandparent. So to start off, you and mom have been married for 40 years this past October, which is an amazing accomplishment for you guys. And I guess in your 40 years, what do you find is the key to a 40-year marriage, if there is one? What is the key to a 40-year marriage? I guess both parties need to be patient, need (laughs) to be understanding. As we all know, going through marriage has its ups and downs. So You know, again, it's commitment. Like I said, just like climbing the mountain, you got to, and there's a lot of mental toughness needed to get through it. So 
it's kind of the same thing. You got to be committed. You got to have the mental toughness to stick to it. It's easy to say, well, you know, I don't want to put up with this or I'll just walk away, but you'll never stop doing that. So again, it's the mental toughness and you got to be able to laugh at yourself and you got to be able to laugh with each other. Still think your mother's beautiful uh, like she was the day I first met her. So uh, that's the key is, you know, just the commitment and the mental toughness to get through everything. How do you think that you and mom balanced your partnership and parenthood? I would really have to give a lot more credit to your mother as far as the parenthood, because if you remember, I was traveling a lot when you were younger. But then I would come in on the weekend and I would be in charge of recreation with the, mm-hmm. with Riverdale and with the Indian Princess stuff and with the AAU basketball and the soccer so I guess the balance was really mom was the parent during the week. And, uh, you know, of course, mom was involved on the weekends with the sports because we both love watching you guys, or I should say you ladies and, and Robbie play sports. That would be the balance. It, mom did a fantastic job of uh, covering while I was away. And, you know, again, I don't know if you remember, but typically I would leave on a Tuesday and come home either Thursday or Friday because uh, of uh, just where I had to travel throughout my territory. So mom did a fantastic job doing that and then again when things come down and on the weekends i would try to do the best i could with you kids so you did a good job we would like to say (laughs) um what were you least prepared for in parenthood the girls teenage years Uh, (laughs) (laughs) if you remember i used to have real curly hair and then when you and Allie were going through your teens all my beautiful curls went away that was that was difficult dealing with that was difficult deal and not that you kids were bad by no means but it was you know you know you'll see what it's like with willow and it's it's mainly just the girls like robbie didn't really have that difficult of a time going through uh middle school and and the high school years but you know it's just it's tougher on girls because of everything that that's going on around them with their bodies with the girls going back and forth so that was probably the most difficult period of my life i lost all that beautiful curls sorry about that (laughs) okay well you know listen you turned out to be a beautiful young lady as did your sister so i guess it's all okay yeah we had to dislike you for a little while for us to come back around yeah, up until your 20s, yes. early 20s, yeah. What was your favorite thing to do with us, either growing up or now? Well, growing up, I, I used to love to go to all the sports games you guys were involved with. And it, here's, I don't know if you know it, but I rarely missed one of your games. I yeah. mean, I would travel. I would leave your games, especially if it was a high school basketball game. I would hit the road like 10 o'clock at night and then travel all night to get to my appointment the next next day instead of missing the game. Yeah. So uh, that was really enjoyable. It was important to me because, listen, you only go through that once. It's not like you get a rerun on, on your high school days, right? Yeah, that, so was, I made, that was definitely something that I guess I just thought that everybody's parents just came to every game and I didn't realize it in my high school years. And then when I started playing rugby in college and you guys weren't at my games and I was like, this is so weird. Wait. And then other people would say, Oh, my parents never really came to my games. So it was definitely maybe not in the moment that we realized how important it was, but after we, as we were older, we realized that was really special. Yeah. You, you learn to appreciate it. But your mother and I used to love to go to those rugby games. Yeah. <laughs> they were- we started going whenever we could uh, because just 
with Robbie and Allie. We, we, we can only be so many places, but those games were fun to watch, the rugby games. They were. They, even though that was the sport that I played for the least amount of time, I think that was what I, I enjoyed the most, just the aspect of the craziness of it. Yeah, you had a lot of fun team members. Too. Yes, yes, so. we did. I know when you guys were raising us, there wasn't all of the information about parenting styles and different rules of parenting. But if you could encompass what you think your parenting style was, what do you think that would be? Well, I don't know if I had a so-called parenting style, because like you said, there were no compartmentalization of parenting back in the day. But as we spoke about, I used to like to be involved with your activities and, you know, now the family activities. And I just wanted to raise you kids to be respectful, which I believe you are to other people. And that was funny because, and I would talk about this with my friends that had kids, you know, you kids would be uh, raising hell at home. And then we'd go out and see somebody and they'd say, oh, I just saw Samantha. She is so polite. And me and your mother would look at each other like, what? That's the most (laughs) important part, right? Yes, exactly. What what's on the outside? So uh, you know, you hope you hope you do that. You hope you give the kids enough latitude to enjoy life, but be there when they scrape and fall their knees, literally and figuratively. Listen, I'll be the first to admit I made a lot of mistakes, and uh, there's times where I think of stuff I did. I'm like, damn, I wish I would have never done that, or I never did that. But you can't take that back. And yeah. You know, there's no right or wrong way to do it. You just hopefully you learn from your mistakes and, you know, you move forward and you hope you did, you taught your kids the best, which I I think we did an okay job. You know, like, again, you kids are uh, fairly, not fairly, you're very respectful to people. You greet people and you're you're becoming good parents yourself. And that's really what I'm hoping my parenting style was to you kids. Yeah, and I think that's something, again, as I and parenting when you look at your parents you think that they know everything and they're supposed to know everything and then looking back you realize they also had no idea what they were doing so it does give a lot of grace for things that maybe we didn't like the way that you parented a certain situation or whatever but knowing that you guys just were doing what you thought was best um with best intentions Obviously, we realize that now as adults rather than we were when we were 14 or 15 years old. And I think that's something important. And like Allie and I were kind of saying last week that you and mom can both admit that maybe everything wasn't the right decision that you made, but you did everything you did out of love. And I think a lot of people can't self-reflect And some people I know, if they said something to their parent, like, you know, when I was 19, you did this, or when I was 10, you did that. And they go into automatic defense mode of, well, I guess I wasn't a good parent. And it's like, well, (laughs) you know, that's not necessarily what they mean. But if you could sit there and say, I mean, yeah, maybe that wasn't right. It kind of gives a little bit more sense to it all and like I said as as a parent nothing really makes sense so we're all just trying to figure it out as we go along well, yeah you're trying to do the bit like one thing I, I this might seem kind of silly to you but we you had a bedtime and I think you were in sixth grade and you might have been watching the Grammys or something 
and uh, or one show. The MTV made... Music Awards, actually. They're... Oh my God, I... this is still affecting it you. It didn't. <laughs> it brought it back up though, because everybody was talking about it the next day in my English class with my teacher, <laughs> and I could not contribute to the conversation because I had to go to sleep. I'm such a bad parent now. <laughs> That's one of the things I regret. Okay. As far as making you go to, I, I mean, I didn't realize it was going to be that traumatic your, the whole rest of your life. <laughs> I apologize. <laughs> I don't remember it being that traumatic. I do remember that, though. I don't remember my... Well, it wasn't like we were trying to be mean. It's like, Samantha, you got a bedtime. I don't know what time. It was yeah. 9 o'clock or whatever it was. You got to get to bed. And you're like, no, I want to watch this. I'm like, no, nah, you got to go to bed. <laughs> That's that, but, but it's still affecting you. It, Obviously it is. But <laughs> it brought back up traumatic memories that oh I've suppressed, God. apparently. But yeah, I do well, remember that class the next day that everybody was talking about it. And I could not okay, see, talk about I can it. admit that I was wrong in that instance. Okay. Well, now I'm healed, I guess. <laughs> Good. Thank you. All right. What was one thing that you said you would probably never do before kids, but you definitely did? Probably a lot of things. But um, one thing that stands out is, I don't know if you remember this, but there used to be this dinosaur called <laughs> Barney. <laughs> I remember Barney. Okay. Barney, to me, was the most annoying. Maybe kids loved him, but he was just annoying, just the way he spoke <laughs> and all that stuff. It was just annoying. So somehow your mother got tickets to take Robbie to go see Barney and she bailed and she went out with her friends <laughs> and made me go to, to Barney and I took Barney. It was, uh, I think I took maybe Mikey okay. with me and it was like the worst two hours of my life. <laughs> it was at the time, it might've been the spectrum. I don't even know if it was the stadium now. I'm so sh so shocked I can't even think of the name yeah. of the place. But that that was something I swore I would never do, and I I did it. I troopered through, but uh, I never let Robbie know how ticked off I was about well, going there. Well, sorry, Robbie. Now you know. <laughs> now you know. But uh, I actually took Mr. Gaddy. Me and Mr. Gaddy went. Oh jeez. Oh, my yeah, gosh. I, I hope you guys I, had something to drink before I, you went in. No, but I I'm, I took him out to dinner. I owe him a lot. <laughs> Make him sit through. Two hours of Barney, but that that was a tough time. Yeah. <laughs> um, when you were raising us, what were some of the biggest challenges that you faced as a parent? Well, as far as the two girls, you and Allie, you're always worried that you know, God forbid, if anything crazy happened, whether it was in school or whether you were playing, you know, unfortunately, even back then there was crazy people in the world. So, uh, you know, we were always worried about that stuff. That, <clears throat> that's why we liked the swim club so much. You know, you hate to say it, but you were, you were behind a fence the whole day. You hate to say yeah. it, but uh, there's a lot of land there, but you kids had a lot of fun there. And that was when you were, uh, protected walking around back then. Not, not that it was super bad, but there was always crazies in the world and you just always worried about that, and and um, I think we we made it through that. So I'm I'm glad we did. I'm yes. glad we did. I think you did. How did you approach discipline with us? I think I was more discipline oriented than your mother was. Yes. Um, your mother, as you know, didn't want to hurt your feelings or anything yeah. like that. So I would be the disciplinarian, which I was the bad guy. I was the bad cop, and your mom was the good cop, and that's kind of how we handled it. And I was okay with that. You know, I was okay with that. Well, I think also yeah. with you, with mom being home with us all the time, 
there was more leniency and an understanding of certain things. And then it was kind of like, if we really stepped over the line, then you had to call dad in um, because a, she probably just didn't have the energy to deal with it (laughs) because she was, you know, dealing with everything else. And I definitely see that as a parent now with, and even talking to a lot of friends about that, you know, mostly the dads were the, the harder disciplinarians and, especially with girls, you know, the mom can relate a little bit better and understand the different things that are going on and be more laid back with everything. And then I feel like when you have to call dad and that's when you knew you were in trouble. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of the way it was. And it, and it worked. It worked. I think it worked. Yeah. So I, think it I was okay with that being a bad cop. What were some lessons that you wanted to try to teach us as a parent, like, what did you want us to learn leaving your household in regards to life and family? I'm hoping that we taught you, and I, and I think we did, hoping that we taught you to honestly take care of yourself because there's so many people that if, once they leave, they just don't know what to do. So <clears throat> I know what me and your mom, or at least I think me and your mom tried to do is make sure you just knew the basics, knew how to cook, knew how to clean, knew how to do, I mean, it sounds kind of silly, you got to do the wash. I mean, you know. I definitely didn't know how to do any of those things because mom did them all for me. <laughs> <laughs> I tried. That was the problem. <clears throat> I wanted that. Now, I can say with Robbie, it's he Robbie. knows how to cook. Mm-hmm. He knows how to clean. He knows how to do the wash. I kind of drilled it into him. Again, it's difficult as a dad to kind of, I don't want to say physically beat up your daughters but you know what i mean beat up your daughters yeah. like this is how you do the why it's kind of difficult for dads to do that a little bit different when you have a boy you know a son you can say son this is how you do the, mm-hmm. you know this is how you do the wash this is how you change a receptacle you know stuff like that so that was at least i accomplished it with Robbie. <laughs> <laughs> with one of us that's that's a 333 batting average i'd be an all-star yeah um i mean from my perspective i feel like you guys definitely always instilled that family is the most important thing and oh yeah 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 sorry about that i forgot about that uh as you know we are uh, a very close-knit family and family is the, the number one thing because uh, whether it's high or low, you should be able to fall back on your family when you're at your low and you should be able to celebrate with your family when you're at your high. So family is numero uno in my book. Yes. And I appreciate that being instilled into us. Besides the MTV Music Award debacle, what do you have any big mistakes or regrets about how you raised me or any of us? or that you learned later afterwards that you wish maybe you yeah. would have done certain Honestly, things? Honestly, I think I was toughest on you because you were the first one. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, you were the guinea pig. <laughs> so, <laughs> but but I think I was toughest on you and things eased up with Allie and Robbie. Uh, I hope that doesn't affect you long-term. No. But I mean, uh, also, I, I think, I think you and I, we had a, a, a special bond as well. But you know, I, I guess because you were first, you you just, at least I expected the most out of you. And you gave us the most. Mm-hmm. You really did. Did a heck of a job on that. So uh, that would probably be my only regret is that I think I was a little bit tougher on you than I was on the other on the other two. 
So well, I mean, I appreciate the toughness. I think that definitely helped form my mentality and my toughness on myself. And I do think, you know, even when I talk to my students, I can always I can always pick out who the oldest kids are. I'll say, are you the oldest in your family? They'll say, yeah, I'm like, I can tell because they're the most, they're more serious. They're more, I don't want to say driven because Allie and Robbie are both very driven as well. But yeah. I think I am in a, a different way than they are. But I don't have any, I, I appreciate the toughness on the other side, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it was for your own good, young lady. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and we'll, I'll probably be the same with Willow because I'm, yeah. you know. Well, we won't let you do that to Willow. Yes, no, I'm sure you guys won't. <laughs> uh, what were some of your favorite memories of us spending time? Like, what were your favorite things to do with us growing up? Well, a lot of time at the pool. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a lot of fun. You know, when we went to Florida, those times, the Disney World, yeah, I guess they I were would fun. say. We went unfortunately went to north carolina that one time remember it was real rainy i didn't uh, i don't think i didn't go that year no 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 you guys were kids oh it was rainy it was rainy and we, we went on to the bay fishing do you remember that? oh yeah yeah i do i didn't <laughs> i was, get sick yeah everybody yeah. i was the only one to be getting sick it was so rough in the bay that yeah. people were getting sick but there was just all the you know the vacations we took and uh, I was glad mom kind of made me do that because, you know, I was always so, unfortunately, you hate to say, but so driven to succeed at work that sometimes you forget a little mm-hmm. bit. But mom did a great job of saying, hey, you need to do this. You need to do this. And I was glad she did that because now we have the memories. And of course, the best memories were the uh, Indian princess days when it was just yeah. me and you and Allie. I don't know if you listened to the podcast today, but Allie and I talked about that on last week's episode about how as kids it was the best thing ever but we kind of think about it from the dad's perspective now that we're parents about how much fun you guys probably had being away and just like enjoying doing letting us run free it's a good thing dyphus never showed up (laughs) all the dads would be in jail yeah (laughs) that was was a lot of fun that's a lot of good memories and i know you girls enjoyed it so it was just a lot of fun a lot of fun yeah no uh social media track of any of that oh jesus that would have been terrible (laughs) they can't do that today what we did back then no What advice would you give me now that I'm a parent based on your experiences and lessons? I'll tell you, Samantha, I just saw this last week We when we had Willow and Parker and we met Allie with Max and Carter at the park. There was a bunch of people there and we, we saw a couple of different parents. And I'm sure I was guilty of this. A couple of different parents say, hey, you've got two minutes left and we got to go. And another parent said, hey, come on, you can only do four more swings or this and that. And I'm like, you don't realize, and I I know you probably, I'm thinking to myself, you probably have to go somewhere tonight, but you're not going to have this moment. (laughs) Figured there'd be crying at some point. (laughs) I'll I'll gather myself. (laughs) It's Okay. You're not going to have this moment again. No freaking clock. Throw the clock away because soon enough, they're going to be 36 and 33. <laughs> and you just you just don't have it. <laughs> and you don't get to see them every day. 
that's the worst part about being a parent. <laughs> you don't get to see your kids every day anymore. Yeah. And you don't get to tickle them or pull their hair or annoy them. You don't get to do that. Yeah. I I do. I think about that. Um, and, you know, I, again, understand it more as a parent now that, um, like, there's just it's it's fast and I see it with my kids already how fast it's going and how one day they're going to be my age and it's the same thing you're just moving on because that's what life happens you can't no matter how many times you ask I can't come live back home (laughs) um I know and that's that's the worst to me that's the worst part of being a parent is it's over yeah and you'll you'll never get it back and you know, in a good way, you're doing the same thing with your raising your kids and life goes on. But I think about that <laughs> when I'm driving and it just brings me to tears in that damn butterfly. Song. <laughs> <laughs> Every time I hear that, I start crying. I, you know what? I, I thank God all the time. I am who I am, or I should say, I have what I have, meaning that I have you kids. Um, you know, was I the best? No. Did I do things wrong? Absolutely. But I, I thank God that I had you three kids, and I, I really I wouldn't want to trade myself with anybody, anybody in the world, because I just love you kids so much. <laughs> well, thank you. Um... Can you come home tonight? <laughs> Uh, I have no one to watch my kids if I uh, okay. mark them. You can bring them. Okay. You can bring them. Um, um. Well, I mean, I think that's probably a good spot to end the podcast. Um, oh, we were recording that whole time? Yeah, oh, I was recording. Okay. Um, I'll cut out some of the silent pauses, but <laughs> that's this is great. And, um, you know, I am grateful for this to just kind of sit down and and even though we have our conversations, but you don't always get to ask, I, I mean, yeah, these, ty- yeah, these sure. types of questions, there's a lot. Mm-hmm. And um, I know this is going to be long and I hope that um, I, I know that everybody listening will learn a lot from this. So um, it might take them a couple of days to finish it, but it will be a really, really good one. It was an honor, Dad, to have you and share all of these insights and share your trip with us talking about your journeys over the last few years and doing them at an age that most people couldn't imagine doing it at, let alone doing the trek to Everest, the Inca Trail, and Kilimanjaro. I hope that everyone found this conversation as valuable and informative as I did. I just wanted to say thank you for being such an inspiration for us, for our kids, for everybody around us, and just to understand that you're never too old to do anything, that the importance of family, the importance of what it's going to be like when you're in your 60s and now you're, uh, you're having a new experience with grandkids and seeing us as parents, and I'm sure, as you just mentioned, that this is probably a tough thing as well because it's you're seeing us in a different light as well in this podcast we learned about the importance of making time for things making time for family making time for exercise setting a positive example for our children and also gained how to stay motivated in our later years 
something to remember that parenthood and fitness are not mutually exclusive. They can go hand in hand and in the right mindset and approach, we can create healthy habits for a longevity of life. So dad, thank you so much for sharing all the stuff also about parenthood with me and giving me some insight into the way my childhood was and the advice that you gave is just something that's really special. And I just wanted to say thank you for coming on. Well, it was very enjoyable, and thank you for interviewing me, and uh, hopefully we made some good points to your listeners, and we'll, we'll carry on, and if you, you need me back, I'll have to charge you next time. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, my pleasure. Uh, yes. Thanks again, Dad, and love you very much. Love you, too. Be good. Take care. I hope you all enjoyed this as much as I did. And thank you to our listeners for your continued support. You can follow me on Instagram at the running wine mom underscore. Make sure to like, subscribe, and rate the podcast. That would be really awesome if you could do that. And stay tuned for next week. We'll be back next Tuesday with more exciting discussions on health, wellness, and parenting in future episodes.